You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Dental cements have certainly evolved over the years. Up until the late 70s, we pretty much relied on only one cement. Today, we have more than five different types of cements. And to make things more complex, these newer cements have all kinds of dispensing and mixing methods, as well as a broad array of setting mechanisms. This can be very confusing, not only to the clinician, but also for the dental assistant. To help clarify things, we welcome our guest, Dr. Tazir Suleiman, Associate Professor and Director of Advanced Operative Dentistry and Biomaterials Research at the Adams School of Dentistry, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He has published over 80 peer-reviewed articles, abstracts, and book chapters, and has lectured on numerous national and international stages. Before we get started, I would like to mention that Dr. Suleiman's webinar titled Making Sense of It All, State-of-the-Art Dental Cements is now available as an on-demand webinar on vivalearning.com. Simply type in the search field Suleiman, S-U-L-A-I-M-A-N, and you'll see it. It's an excellent webinar for the entire dental team. Dr. Suleiman, it's a pleasure to have you on Dental Talk. Thank you very much, Dr. Klein. It's a pleasure to be here with you once again with Viva Learning. Yes. Yeah, we appreciate it. And this is a pretty important topic. I mean, Dentists routinely use cements probably several times a day, I would assume, especially with the popularity of ceramics and CAD CAM and everything else they're doing in the office. Any type of indirect restoration requires cement, obviously. So to begin, tell us about the different types of dental cements available in modern day dentistry. Well, you know, I'd like to start off by saying that Unfortunately, to this day, we don't have one cement that can be used for every indirect restoration. So that requires us to understand what type of indirect restoration we have in hand and what we, um, what's the ideal um, cement to be used for that indirect restoration. And so to organize our thoughts, let's classify the cements according to the conventional cements. So you have the, of course, the, the zinc phosphate and polycarboxylate, if they're still around um, and existing in, in your clinic, uh, we have also the glass ionomer based cements. And I'm going to put the resin modified glass ionomer into that category of conventional cements that really require proper resistance and retention form. So just the fundamentals of, of, of fixed prosthodontics um, are applied here and, and they work very well when you do have a proper resistance retention form. So that's the conventional cements. And, and then we have, we can classify the resin cements according to their um, method of curing or polymerization to um, a light cure resin cement. And then we have a dual cure resin cement. And we have, of course, the self cure or the autocure resin cement. So that's in, according to the mode of, of polymerization. Um, and then we can also uh, classify um, some of these modern day cements according to their um, mode of, of, of bond to the two structures. So we have self-adhesive resin cements and we have adhesive resin cements. And so just by understanding that classification, it kind of helps organize your thought a little bit and, and into what is indicated for every specific indirect restoration. So with these new modern day cements, Dr. Suleiman, is it necessary for us to pay strict attention to proper retention and resistance form going forward? In, in our modern day dentistry, we are relying more on bonding to the tooth structure. And I think we have been fortunate with the, um, with the evolution of these resin cements that, are, um, that bond so well to the tooth structure that allows us to um, be more conservative to the tooth structure and rely more on bonding versus relying on 
provide ungrinding more tooth structure to allow for proper retention form. And so a lot of the retentive uh, features that we're getting um, from, from modern day restorative or minimally invasive techniques um, relies on bonding to the tooth structure. And that's where it, a lot of the confusion happens. And, and that's where you really need to know the differences between um, the different types of cements that are available because um, one can perform better in terms of bond strength to the tooth structure and that will allow you to be minimally invasive. And so, um, and, and so, you know, if, if I had, if you asked me that question, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I would say, yes, of course, we have to rely on retention form and resistance form to, um, to, to loot or to cement uh, these restorations. But now with the ceramic partial coverage onlays, overlays, and even veneers, we can be very uh, conservative to the tooth structure and rely more on, uh, on adhesively bonding these restorations in place. So talking about bonding, what are the protocols for bonding glass ceramics, specifically ceramic partial coverage restorations? So whenever we have a glass ceramic material, the ideal um, preparation of, of that material is going to rely on the use of, it's a combination of, 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 um, of hydrofluoric acid etching, so micromechanical retention, and also relies on silenization. So a chemical bond is developed between the ceramic and the adhesive and then to the tooth structure. And so, um, you know, when, um, whenever we do have a, a glass-based material, we wanna dissolve parts of that glass and to create that micro-mechanical interlocking with the resin. And so that's why we rely on hydrofluoric acid. And we commonly know hydrofluoric acid as having two concentrations in our practice. It's the 5% and the 10%. And each specific glass ceramic has a requirement for um, the, the, the concentration of the hydrofluoric acid and the time of application. Those are very crucial um, for any clinician to follow because there's been a lot of research into testing out different formulas and different application times. And, and the ones that we have well-documented now really involves the, um, the use of, of, of either the five or the 10%, but for a defined time. I'll give you an example, feldspathic porcelain. Um, it, it, it's, um, it's predominantly a glass matrix. And so you want to use a 10% hydrofluoric acid to be able to dissolve and to create that proper bond with the micromechanical etching. Um, and you wanna apply it for a minimum of 90 seconds. And again, the concentration and time play a very important role because if you um, applied it for a longer period of time, you're gonna see these salt residues that develop on the Intaglio surface of your restoration, and the salt residues are 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 um, are identifiable by just you know using a 2.5 or even a 3x magnification loop. You don't require specific microscopes to 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 show that, um, and you can determine between an over etched uh, glass ceramic versus a properly etched one, and those salt residues that do develop will um, affect the bond strength to the tooth structure. And so to overcome them, if you do realize that on an integral surface is to use um, ultrasonic bathing has been um, a, a proper way to, to clean the surface um, from these salt residues. And, and you put them four to five minutes in the ultrasonic bathing machine and, and that should take care of, of that salt layer to, um, and, and, uh, and remove it successfully. And so if you move into, for example, the Lucite reinforced glass ceramics, um, this requires a 5% hydrofluoric acid for 60 seconds. So now 
you, we change the concentration and change the time of application. And, and, and then moving into lithium disilicate, for example, which is reinforced with um, lithium disilicate by about 70% by volume. So we have less glass in, in, in that um, ceramic. And so a 5% hydrofluoric acid for 20 seconds is um, ideal to create a properly etched surface. And, and, and so we have other categories of ceramic material that are, for example, hybrid ceramics. This polymer infiltrated ceramic network is predominantly a ceramic mesh infiltrated with a, um, a small amount of about 15% of, of resin. And because of the predominance of the glass matrix, then of course, 5% hydrofluoric acid is required for 60 seconds. So um, I, I try to highlight as best as possible that knowing what concentration to use and, and the time. And about 90% of, of my work is with the 5% hydrofluoric acid with these modern day ceramics. I only have use for the 10% um, for the feldspathic porcelain when I'm doing veneers. So it's become very rare that I'm using the 10% hydrofluoric acid. Um, and some ask, you know, can we play around with like using a 10% on a, on a lithium disilicate, but reduce the time? It really doesn't work that way. Again, they've tried all these different um, combinations and, and, and the, the, the concentration and time that I highlighted is the most ideal for these glass ceramics. And so, then you move on with the silenization process and then applying the adhesive, depending on what system you're using um, uh, to continue forward with properly uh, creating a clean uh, chemical bond to the ceramic material, because chemical bond is what we've learned um, is most valuable, especially to a dentin substru substructure, something that we were missing 20 years ago when we didn't know how to properly bond to the dentin. But now we're starting to figure that out and we understand its importance and if we follow the right protocols, we should not be seeing debonding failures in our practice. When we talk about bonding protocol for zirconia, what are the best practices that dentists should be aware of when they're handling zirconia? So zirconia is a is a different beast here that we're dealing with due to the nature of, of the material itself. It's a, it's a polycrystalline um, a structure. And so we don't have glass in zirconia. We cannot etch it with the conventional methods that I just described with the glass ceramics. And um, we had a lot of debonding failures over the past uh, decade or so with zirconia, which led to many to believe that we cannot bond zirconia restorations. I think that information is, is outdated. Um, um, we have very good evidence that we can bond zirconia to the two structure if we follow a very strict bonding protocol. And that really involves two things. It's a micro-mechanical, again, interlocking or, or a, a treatment. They call it a mechanical pretreatment, and then you have a chemical pretreatment. The mechanical pretreatment involves the use of airborne particle abrasion. Um, and again, a lot of research, research has been done to show what is the ideal protocol to follow to create um, an ideal surface for bonding zirconia. And that involves using um, particles no lar larger than 50 microns for about 20 to 30 PSI pressure at a 10 millimeter distance for about 10 seconds. And again, researchers have tried different um, combinations to see what is the most ideal bond strength that they can get. And what I shared with you is the most ideal um, to create an optimum uh, um, uh, surface to bond to it. And the chemical pretreatment involves using silanes that contain the MDP monomer, which is a magical monomer that creates a very nice and strong chemical bond to the zirconia. And a lot of the modern day 
adhesive systems have the MDP monomer um, in the composition since the patent expired. Croy was the first who came out with this and the patent expired. And so many of these companies have included this monomer in their adhesive system. And, and that's been working phenomenally well to create this nice chemical bond um, to zirconia. What we failed to understand before is the affinity of zirconia to salivary lipid and protein contamination and, and also from the blood um, during try-in. And, and that creates a, a layer that really is hard to get rid of through conventional methods um, that we used for glass ceramics. And so um, we now see these zirconia cleaners that are available in the market. And we've published on, on the most ideal way to clean the intaglio surface after you try it in the patient's mouth. You must remove this contamination to create an optimum bond to the zirconia. And just to keep it simple for, um, for folks listening that, um, you know, what I, the protocol that I personally follow is that when, um, after I get the, the restoration back from my laboratory, they know that they're not supposed to touch the intaglio surface. That's something I take control of. And that I also do for the um, etching process for the glass ceramics as well, because technicians might try to treat the surface in the most ideal way they think is proper, but no one should know this information better than the clinician applying themselves. And so um, I do that pr process myself. And so when I get the crown back, I try it in. And after I'm satisfied with, with, with everything, I go into my lab and I do the airborne particle abrasion because doing that at that particular time is going to do three things. First of all, it's going to clean the surface the best possible way with mechanically detaching all the contamination. It's going to create a optimum rough surface for bonding, and it's going to create an optimum prime surface, and which means that the surface energy is very favorable to receive the ceramic primer afterwards and allows it to create an optimum bond to the zirconia surface. And so Airborne particle abrasion at that step is the most ideal way. Um, and then I go out after that, my surface is ready and prepared. I put my ceramic primer and let it sit for a couple of minutes because I want the ceramic primer to penetrate as best as possible. And then I use a dual cure resin cement um, and um, because a zirconia attenuates light and I wanna make sure that enough energy is passing through the zirconia and we've published work that shows the 22nd time is really not enough to cure the resin properly. Um, I always advise to double the curing time for each surface. So about 40 seconds, assuming you've selected a proper curing light, um, 40 seconds for each surface so that you can ensure enough energy is passing through the zirconia to create an optimum polymerization for that um, cementing material. And so that's the protocol that I've been follow following and, and you know, it's been around for quite some time now. And, and um, there, you know, I haven't really been seeing any debonding failures. Yeah, zirconia certainly seems to be the prevailing material lately. It's trending across dental practices all over the country. And uh, so it's important that that bonding protocol is adhered to, obviously, to maintain Absolutely. a successful restoration long term and getting predictable results. So let's talk about cements for a few minutes as we get towards the end of our podcast. What cements are recommended for aesthetic restorations? And I assume color stability is an important criteria here. Yes. And so, you know, um, if you have a thin ceramic restoration that you're using for aesthetic purposes, for example, veneers, you really want to rely on, on, on a, a, a cement that is light cure only. You know, we've shown again through um, aging these cements that they are color stable and they won't change in color with time. You don't want your cement 
um, dual cure that has the amine component as an initiator that will um, change in color with time and that will show through your ceramic restoration and really disappoint your patient after a while. And so a light cure cement, and you know, I've used um, Rely-X veneer, for example, from 3M is a great product that does have um, a, a light cure cement only that you can use for these um, veneer restorations. And you know, uh, other dual cure cements that do have the amine component in them, you gotta be aware that they will change in color with time. There are new cements that have been introduced um, that are claimed to be amine free and that they have different initiators and they're claiming that they are color stable. Um, we're doing research on that right now just to see how color stable um, are they. But um, for these expensive restorations, I'm not really willing to take the risk yet to use um, dual cure cements that are amine-free. Um, and, and some have already been using them. And I'm really looking forward to see the three or five year um, outcome from, from photos to see if they are color stable. Um, but for the time being, I think the light cure cements are the safest to use. And what I um, follow in, in my practice to make sure that um, the cements don't change in color with time. The Reliax product line has several different cements in it. And that's, yes. is there any way you can clarify the difference between these? And so what 3M has done really is color coded the cements and, but they did that to avoid confusion. And so you have the, the, the pink is the Reliax Looting Plus. That's a resin modified glass ionomer, ideally to be used with restorations that have proper resistance and retention form. And it's been my go-to cement for, um, for you know, PFMs and, and zir monolithic zirconia when I have proper resistance and retention form. I don't even bo bother with bonding it to the two structure because I'm relying more on my retention form and my preparation. And then you have the, um, the self-adhesive Rely-X Unisem is yellow color-coded, mostly indicated when, when your retention form is questionable and you'd like to rely on more bonding to the tooth structure. They have self-etching primers in them that, that work very well to bonding to the dentin surface. And then you have the green color-coded is their Rely-X Ultimate, and that is the adhesive version of the cements, and that's the highest bond you can get to the tooth structure recommended for these partial ceramic crowns that you really want to, that you're relying on um, the retention from the bonding protocol and the bonding procedure versus your retention or resistance form in the, um, in the preparation. 3M and other manufacturers try to do is to combine, you know, these cements into one cement to see if you can do that. And they came out with a Reliax universal cement, which can be used in a self-adhesive mode. And, and you can use it in an adhesive mode as well if you combine it with the Scotch Bond Universal Plus. Um, what's remarkable um, with that cement specifically, what we've been seeing from in vitro studies is that the um, when it's used as a self-adhesive, so excluding their, their adhesive, compared to their own Reliax Unisem, it's about double, sometimes triple the bond strength. And that's quite remarkable for a self-adhesive cement to have that strength of bond to the two structure. And so, you know, um, if you think about that, you really are not needing to use the Unisem or the Ultimate anymore because now the Universal um, replaces both of them. You can use that as a self-adhesive or you can, if you need more retention, you can use the Scotch Bond Universal Plus and it transforms into an adhesive resin cement to optimize um, the bond strength to the two structure. So, that's specifically focusing on the 3M system and that has been around for many years and there's been a lot of research on, on their products. So we are getting close to the point where we can really reduce our inventory when it comes to cements using the system that you just described. Yeah, and especially if our studies are gonna show that they are color stable as well. 
then then they can replace the Reliax veneer light cure cement. Um, and, and, you know, to use the Reliax universal in a self-adhesive mode should be fine or adhesive mode to bond your veneers. And if the color stability is not an issue, then uh, that takes care of, of those types of specific, you know, aesthetically demanding restorations. Dr. Suleiman, thank you so much for your time. Great podcast, so much insightful information. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time.